What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. Today's episode brought to you by Banana. Barana. Oh, crap. I slipped up. So we are So Very Wrong About Games. My name is Michael Walker, and we are a podcast about board games. And I'm here with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. Slip-ups do have banana ramifications. They do. We are going to talk about the game that we reviewed exactly one year ago. We're going to talk about the games we played this week, the news and why it doesn't matter, and the topic this week, which is draws and red flags. Mark, what did we review exactly a year ago? Walker, last year we reviewed Imperial Struggle by GMT Games. This is the kind of sort of follow-up to Twilight Struggle, only in that they share kind of a title and the designers. Other than that, they are entirely different games. They're Imperial Struggle isn't even really card-driven in the same sense, certainly not in the tradition of We the People or any traditional card-driven war game of that ilk. I suspect you have not spared it a thought since the review one year ago. I was about to say, I don't know what you're talking about. We have a, a, a weekly game every Wednesday afternoon where we play Imperial Struggle. We're, you know, right into it. Why must you no, take this podcast not. with lies? No, I have had no... Uh... No inkling to play it. It is it is crunchy like I like, but it's just it is was not my thing for sure. I have thought about it several times. It's not I don't think it has the staying power of Twilight Struggle. And it is very procedural in some unsatisfying ways, but I do really like how it juggles the different theaters of war, how it juggles the different series of wars between the Imperial powers. I quite liked the just the breathtaking cynicism of the end of the war. It's like, okay, well, I won this thing and I won this thing. You want to trade? And talking about the aftermath of the Seven Years' War, it is very fitting. And, and the way that it, it's dealt with in Imperial Struggle, you might end up in a situation where the French win North America militarily, but then decided to trade it for Guadeloupe in a sort of inverse of what actually happened historically. And I've played only once since we reviewed it. Unfortunately, I haven't found a whole lot of partners. There's not really a, a consim audience that we know of in Kingston. I really do like it. Uh, I think the key drawback for me, like giving it the push to bring it back to the table, is how unapologetic it is, or at least how straight-faced it is in presenting the sort of grandeur of the history of imperial progress. And that doesn't sit well with me, especially when compared with some of the lovely satire in Twilight Struggle. So Imperial Struggle was a very interesting design, but I can understand why you haven't wanted to go back to it, and I can certainly understand why I haven't wanted to go back to it. But it did manage to get its way under my top ten of that year. And that is the game we reviewed exactly one year ago, now on to the games we played this week. 
Mark, we got a review copy of a game called Black Hole Rainbow. I don't know if it, if it ends in rainbow, do you really get to use the super dramatic voice? Oh, oh, uh, true. You could do it like a different voice. That could yeah. be like a kid's Saturday morning cartoon. 100%. We got Black Hole Rainbow. Exactly. I think you have to make an editorial choice. I'm sorry for stepping on your creative choice. I guess either one is legitimate. So this is designed by Uncredited. And Uh-oh. published by June Dune Games Production. Title itself sold me on wanting to try it. Unfortunately. <laughs> so if you like to play games like in a bar setting, nice and light, and if you've played a game called Left, Right, Center. Oh my goodness. And you, <laughs> and you thought that and and you thought that it needed a take that card system, first of all. Who did this to you? And secondly, (laughs) stop. Just stop. So this is pretty well what Black Hole Rainbow is. At the beginning of your turn, you're rolling a die, which is pretty left, right, center. You're passing some of these gems to the left or to the right. Or you're taking some from the center. And when you have a, a group of eight in your little tray, then you can trade it in for a victory point. And while all this is happening... Anyone at any time can play these take that cards, which is anything from taking your gems or, or, or making you put them back in the center or stealing all of one color or doing the super fun part, Mark, where you're rolling a D20, you challenge somebody and you put all of your gems together in the, in the pool. And then you start rolling a D20 back and forth. And then whoever rolls a one in four chance star on the D20 wins and they take all of the gems. And guess what all the other players get to do while you're doing this? Pray for a quick death? Nothing. They sit there and watch and cheer and hope that you roll a star on this D20. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. Some people might love this. Some people might like just love the crazy. You know, we I can't say we didn't have fun. It is on stream if you want to watch us play it. You know, we tried our best to get into it. You know, we just said, <laughs> okay, we're we're doing this. This is happening right now. You know, it's a take that silly cheer each other on type game. Let's see if we can do this. But yeah, in the end, it is definitely not for me. But I can see in that setting. We had a good time with Starship Samurai Walker. We can have a good time with anything. If we're yeah, willing to go that true. extra mile, people talk about meeting games on their own terms. But you and I and, and our broader group in Kingston on occasion, we just know that things are going to go for Disaster Town. And we can get in that mindset and enjoy it. That is not to the game's credit. It's true. But like, like I'm saying, if you we need a game for that setting, light in a bar, fun with Take That, I can tell you about th- six other games that would do that better than Black Hole Rainbow. I appreciate the chance to play it, but in the end, I, I'm it just did not do it for me. Your kind words, Walker, sound like Stockholm Syndrome. Just because the game <laughs> hurts you doesn't mean you have to thank them for it. I've played a number of games of Ascension Tactics miniatures deck building game, and Walker, I gotta tell you, I've kind of gone all over the map on this one. Because I think it's highly scenario-dependent. And by scenario, I'm including both the actual scenario of the game and by virtue of what happens to come out into the market row. Because, as people well know, Ascension was one of the first deck builders to enter the scene post-Dominion. And its key innovation at the time, although it had a number of innovations, was that there's the center card row of cards that you could purchase rather than set stacks that you could buy from. 
And one thing that Ascension Tactics miniatures deck building game, in an attempt to use a deck builder framework to power a miniatures game, is it's really doubled down on a variety of ambush effects. A whole bunch of cards in this card set have an ambush effect, namely an immediate effect when you buy the card, as well as a different effect when you actually play the card. And what this allows you to do is break up some of the stale monotony of the board action. Because honestly, in some of the early scenarios, and if you don't have a lot of these ambush actions, I honestly feel that the board adds nothing to the game. And that I'd much rather be playing just either Core Ascension or Shards of Infinity or whatever your preference is. Because quite frankly, when I play a card that does a certain set amount of damage, whether I use that damage to purchase another card on the card row, or to directly attack an opponent, or to score points for myself, six of one, half a dozen the other... That works just fine. The tedium of actually moving a figure from a spawn point to then some sort of scoring area only for it to die and then have to go back and start over wave upon wave upon wave makes me feel like I'm managing the minions in a MOBA-style game. And that is not fun. The minions are mindless for a reason, Walker. They just go to where they go, they die, and then they show up again, over and over again. And if you don't have good ambush effects, if you don't have a good scenario design, if you don't have a some sort of clever hook to what's going on on the board, honestly, I've played a couple of games of Ascension Tactics now where that's exactly how it feels. Spawn, march, die. And I'm like, why did I bother with the marching part? I could have just played a card to have a similar effect. But then there are some other scenarios, Walker. I tried. The, I've tried the campaign system. And I think there's something to say by virtue of the fact that I was tempted to go back. Because, again, sometimes you'd see these ambush effects and you'd start getting these tactical situations that were far better than the endless march to the center and then death zone. Because you could figure out a way to kill that champion you couldn't kill before. You could pull out a surprise combo that would really catch your opponent on their back foot. And the solo, solo campaign system is actually quite clever at times. Interesting scenarios where you have to go out and occupy certain terrain pieces to weaken a boss and then go kill that boss once they've been weakened by virtue of these uh, positional elements you've used. Again, this makes me feel like I'm playing a miniatures game rather than some sort of glorified busy work appended to a deck builder game. And it's very frustrating as a consequence. On the whole, my experience with the Ascension Tactics miniatures deck building game has been kind of middling, but the good scenarios have been very fun. If all the scenarios were the good ones, I'd highly recommend it. If all the scenarios were the bad ones, I'd say stay far, far away and stick to your preferred realms derivative and or Ascension. But the promise of the good scenarios when it all comes together is very appealing. Now, to a certain extent, the reason why I went to try this game was because some of the people who've worked on Ascension Tactics are the same people who worked on the World of Warcraft collectible miniatures game. I have no enthusiasm for collectability and no enthusiasm for World of Warcraft, but nonetheless, that miniatures game was really clever. And one of the things that you had in the World of Warcraft miniatures game, which you still have in Ascension Tactics, is relatively low-scale movement. You're only moving three hexes by default. In World of Warcraft, you were mostly just moving one or two. But the key reason why I think the formula works more consistently in the World of Warcraft game is because it wasn't just a one-shot, one-kill combat element. And so you had the traditional joys of your tactical game of leveraging abilities and trying to figure out your, your targets, which ones do we want to wear down, which ones do I need to go for a coup de grace, which ones do I need to ignore for now and leave wounded, etc., etc. In Ascension Tactics, mostly it's, well, can my champion kill this other champion? No? Okay, well, then I guess they are not going to be fighting. 
And again, the way you get around that is through the ambush effects. Again, the core elements here in Ascension Tactics Miniatures Deck Building Game don't really justify the additional cost, table presence, setup time, and just tedium of moving the components around. But when it comes together, there's something really cool and really special. I guess what I'm saying is I want to play more World of Warcraft collectible miniatures game, which is good. I, I got a, a collection of all the minis, and I printed up a whole bunch of proxies because uh, the, the lovely secret of Tabletop Simulator is that you, anything that's on Tabletop Simulator you can print out and use as a proxy, and someone has the entire collection there. I can't really recommend Ascension Tactics, but I've had some good times with it, and I want to play it some more, which is bizarre. I will say this. The AI for dr driving the uh, solo and co-op versions is actually kind of clever. There's this escalation system whereby a card will do one thing if it enters early in the scenario, but it will do two things if it's later in the scenario. There's the Running the AI is incredibly simple, but nonetheless, some novel surprises happen. This is absolutely not a David Surtze-style design of a nested conditionals of if-thens and targeting priorities and so forth. No, 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 no. It's very, very straightforward. The most tedious aspect, honestly, of running the solo version is just finding the specific minis you need to pull out of the bizarrely organized trays. I mention it just because it's it's so strange. Walker, Walker has some experience with this as well. All the miniatures are arrayed in a tray, and there's a very handy numbering system that lets you know which mini is which, uh, which name. And the numbers are not in ascending order, and the minis are not in alphabetical order. So I'll cross the top ray of miniatures. You might see 37, 6, 2, 13. It's like, I, uh, oh, oh, sure, why not? I know I'm looking for miniature number 8, but I don't know where that might be. Anyhow. If you're knee-deep in the Ascension universe, makes maybe it makes perfect sense to you, but it was just a bizarre organizational decision. And again, when you're comparing this to games like Ascension, games like Shards of Infinity, which have close to zero setup time, it does make things rather pointed. So I'm probably going to play a little bit more, certainly of the campaign system of Ascension Tactics Ministers Deck Building Game, because some of the scenarios there are indeed clever, but I'm somewhat leery of the overall package, and so I think that this is a near miss, all told, personally, despite the fact that I want to go back to it. So that's where I'm sitting right now with Ascension Tactics, the miniatures deck building game. This was by Justin Gary and Ryan Sutherland, but there's also a, a development team a mile long, published by Stoneblade Entertainment this year after a successful Kickstarter. I'm excited to go back to it now because we only played it versus and... I think Dewey there would love to play it campaign style. In the campaign, do you get to pick the characters that you want to, or do they assign them to the different scenarios? That's one of the clever elements of the campaign system. It, you start off in the first scenario by just selecting a faction with two canned characters. And when I started that, I looked at it and said, oh, well, this is going to be boring. Because, indeed, trying out different teams is one of the joys of many a miniatures game, and Ascension Tactics is no exception. The scenarios, though, very quickly let you customize your team not quite in a freeform way. So after the first scenario, you then get to pick two more champions to join your roster from a list of teams. And so there's a little bit of customizability there. And then you start getting more bennies and more toys. And the way that it introduces more toys is in a very manageable but very uh, entertaining way. And that's, again, one of the clever bits. I just wish that the scenario design were consistently rising to the challenge. Well, on top of those ambush cards that you're talking about, there is a little bit of combos up with the champions and the mechanical contraptions that you put on your heroes sometimes can level them up awfully quickly as well. That's true. I got to play a game from AEG called Meeples and Monsters. This was a Kickstarter 
that came in this week. It is a bag builder where you're putting meeples in the bag. You're drawing the meeples out. They are clerics and barbarians and fighters and and wizards, and they do different things in different spaces. There's this odd mechanism where you're sort of building your board for the first few turns because there's only eight spaces uh, in order to put new buildings. And once they're filled, that's it. The board's done. And in a four-player game, that would just be two turns and the board would be filled. You could skip that phase in order to, for whatever reason, to do other things. But there's advantages advantages to build them because you get to choose the building that goes there and you get a bonus of what you're covering up. So it is it felt odd, but, you know, in retrospect, we sort of were talking about it after. And it seemed interesting because you're just sort of building the board. It makes it unique every game. And you're fighting monsters, and that is pretty it, pretty well it. So it, it's a very light game. And if you really like Lords of Waterdeep or a uh, Orleans and you wanna, want to baby step someone into that type of game and or you have a younger crowd, I think this would be a great game. It went a little bit long with four players, but you can easily play with the deck because it's one of these games that's much like Ethnos. You're shuffling in sort of game-ending cards in different tier decks, and as they come up, it will let you put more stuff in your bag and do other things, and then when the final one comes up, it'll let you attack the big monsters at the top to get, like, the big victory points. So you're getting these tower tiles that get you victory points, killing monsters that give you victory points, and they also buff up your heroes, and your heroes are getting abilities because you get to level them level them up as well. So it's kind of interesting because, you know, you draw a cleric, and if there's a corruption in your pile as well, then it lets you redraw, and so you're getting these combos going, you're going on, you know, going out fighting monsters, and it, it was all around pleasant experience, but a little too light for me. This is designed by Ole Steinus and, like I said, published by AEG. Played another game of Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition. This is a pre-publication prototype version sent to us by Tom Stasiak at Beautiful Disaster Games. It is going to be launched on GameFound later this year. And again, I wanted to try some of the new stuff I fought against The Blob, which has a fascinating damage element whereby it can't be killed. The various elements of The Blobs can't be killed unless they're reduced to very, very low hit points. So first you hit it, it splits. You might hit it again, it'll split again. And it'll only actually die once you finish off very small stacks. Number one, this was very clever and cool. And what I love to see is designers really play with a design space that their clever mechanisms allow them to do. Very much like how I appreciate good scenario design in a game that allows for scenario design. The downside, though, is what this is really doing is in Doomrock, it's really emphasizing that you need to build your character for spec. But the problem is you don't necessarily know what boss you're going to be facing. Now, What I mean to say is most of the time when you're fighting in Doomrock, well, first of all, you're going to lose. Secondly, in order to pretend as though you might have a shot at winning, most of the time you have to overcome armor, overcome shields, do large quantities of damage with a single attack. These are usually some of the priorities, especially given that with the dice allocation system, you can't necessarily be guaranteed to have as many attacks as you might like. The blob completely upends all these assumptions in fascinating ways mechanically, but in terms of the progression of the adventure, somewhat unsatisfyingly. You know, you, you only have a couple of chances to level up over the course of a game of Assault on Doomrock, and I look at the blob and I say, this is really cool. Had I known I would be fighting the blob, I probably would have made different decisions about how to make this build, and that would have been interesting. 
there are ways that you can scout and see what monsters you're going to be facing upcoming in Doomrock. They are few and far between. So I have to say that if this is the overall direction, I have some concerns along with my optimism. And another thing that I tried was the new solo version, which instead of just having one character control two heroes in Doomrock, you can have one character and then a semi-AI-driven thug who does something at the usually top something at the top of the round and then something at the bottom of the round. And it's simpler, you don't have to allocate as many dice as they level up. They do get more abilities and therefore get some of the same abilities that heroes get and they do offer you more dice, but most of the time you're still focused on your hero. And I do appreciate that because one of the challenges in adventure games when you're running multiple characters is sometimes you don't feel the same sense of agency, the same sense of identification that you might have as this is my character, I am doing these things. And now you get a sense of that with someone following you along. And I think the thug worked very well, especially since some of the thug's actions were conditional on the thug's location. And this further leaned in to the genius of Assault on Doomrock, which is the abstracted movement system. And so I knew that if the thug at the end of the round was only going to do something, if it was either adjacent to my hero or adjacent to a monster or not adjacent to any of those things, that really leverages the necessity of maneuvering at the right time, preventing people from being surrounded, all those great things that I love on Doomrock. Now... The other thing that I've generally noticed about the new content in Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition is that it seems to have scaled up in terms of the intensity of a lot of the effects. This is overall good, but it leads me to wonder, and I feel so dirty and so traitorous and so weak-kneed weak saying this as a fan of Doomrock Walker, I wonder if this is actually making Doomrock too difficult. Because the trick is, when you ramp up everything, if you just increase the overall damage output and the overall effectiveness of various effects, this is going to redound to the disadvantage of the heroes because they are capped at six hit points, they don't get past six hit points, and so if you're making everything more intense, their ability to survive just gets incredibly difficult. Regardless of the fact that they're getting more powerful too, it's just their margin for error becomes so negligible that it becomes really difficult. And as an example, one of the core abilities of the blob was to step one, steal two shields, so you lose any protection that you might have garnered over the course of the round, and then do two hit points worth of damage. So barring any other modifiers, unless you can get three shields in one round, which is doable but not really plausible most of the time, you're going to take a third of your life total right away from that single activation in a single round. And so that puts a hard cap on how far you can really go. Because, again, normally in Doomrock, if you want to survive, you need to desperately try to accumulate some shields, maybe some defensive abilities. But when everything is ramped up to 11 and your defensive abilities are just hard countered, I have some concerns. Anyway, there's tons of opportunity for this to be developed over the course of the prototype, and I will, of course, keep you apprised. This is a new set of encounter cards uh, that have been updated since the previous pre-production prototype version of Doomrock Ultimate Edition we had. And I love a lot of the design ideas. I just wonder if they're not coming together with quite the same cohesion that the earlier sets demonstrated. But the new content remains consistently amusing and interesting in terms of the various challenges. So I'm still very, very optimistic overall about the prospects of Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition, but I am very curious about how some of these specific elements will come to fruition, and of course, we will keep you posted. So that is Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition by Tom Stasiak at Beautiful Disaster Games, slated to be up on crowdfunding later on this year. Mark, I got to go back to Teotihuacan, City of the Gods, and I mean all of Teotihuacan, City of the Gods. Ooh. Nine 
modules. This is by Boards and Dice. So nine additional modules added on to the already, you know, large game, plus a bunch of promo stuff, which is mostly just, you know, extra text and extra tiles. So Mark, we have another track. You know, because it needed more tracks. <laughs> mm. But this one is this one's orange, though. It's or it's different color than the other tracks. Orange, you glad they added a new track? It's exactly. And as you go up this, you can get uh, like techs. They're almost like the technologies that you got. You know, you choose which as you go up the track, different sets of technologies. More then there's yet another, another track, track and a different kind of tech. Yes, yes. And now and then the next the next module is another track, but this oh, one boy. has. A push mechanism. So as you're putting these meeples out, they push other, there can only be one meeple per space. So you put a meeple in, you push another person's meeple out. And then if another one's pushing, you slowly going out in this like sort of spider webby, spider webby sort of like a sideboard that is like uh, a map. So you're taking over these locations. And this is another place where you can put the buildings from the Path of the Dead. Instead of just covering up victory point spaces, you can claim these different lands out on this other board. The next one is a uh, set of tiles, which is our weather tiles. And we remembered every round to, to turn over a new one. Pretty good, eh? I, I sense you're and being they, sarcastic. I doubt that this is true. No, no, we remembered. We really? Remembered. We got them all down. Good yeah, job. So th- these are all, these are all like overall powers that change uh, every turn. Like either you get to move uh, further or do different things. Uh, the, I think we got one that was moved further, one that changed how much we had to feed our units and something else in the first turn that I don't remember off the top of my head. There was also player powers. So you get to draw these tiles at the beginning and choose like a special power just for you. Uh, there's a new, uh, resource called Onyx, which is wild. There's a new temple and decoration board. So there's a new spaces to go to to build the temple tiles, which sort of mixes up how you do it and the steps to decorate the, the big temple that you're building. New techs, like I already talked about. There are new key powers. You know, there was that one very boring tile that you went to to do key powers that were normally quite useless. Well, they changed that whole board up new tiles. It's called the mansion now. So not only do you get to, you know, lock dice in, but the powers are better. And, uh, there's also secondary things you can do because dice that you leave there because dice that, uh, retire start there. So when you use those spaces, all of your dice there count towards the key value. So even, even doesn't matter what the, you know, the pips plus how many other dice you have there. So it's made them all more powerful. And then there's this shaman, last and and least, I'm all done now. I'm sorry, I, you know, babbled on about all these different modules. Last but not least was this shaman expansion that put all these different spaces in between all of the spaces. So you had the shaman going counterclockwise around the board, doing their thing, while you had your dice going clockwise around the board, doing their thing. So it was lots to think about, lots to front end on, you know, new players. Wait, 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 wait. hold on. You introduced someone to Teotihuacan with no, no, nine additional no, modules? No, we did not. Okay, I'm good. saying if, if you were introducing someone. We talked about it afterwards. We thought some wild, we, cruel person called Schmocker. Yes, some, some other person did. You know, I heard about it, you know, on another night, not the night that we played. Yeah, some down on the playground, someone. people were talking about it. It yeah, was wild. Exactly. So we talked about one, which modules you could sort of peel away if it was a new player and other ones that were just, you know, 
just sort of added to the game extra tiles or one more track to take care of not too much but overall i thought it was very interesting added a lot to it because if i don't know if you remember but locking your dice in on those other spaces was a sort of a fool's game you Absolutely. didn't really do it it didn't really now that's completely changed because of all sorts of different all of these different uh tiles that are on the board now uh, at higher levels have a free unlock space. So not only do you get resources, but you also get to unlock a die. So they sort of freed all that up, made it make more sense, and just made the overall experience much better. Sure, but this is a fundamental difference of design philosophy, right? I look at those design spaces, I look at those spaces that are never, ever used, and I think, well, Reiner Knizia would point out, and I think he's right, you should just get rid of them. But the contemporary Euro aesthetic seems increasingly to be, well, what if we introduced another module that introduced another sub-mechanism that made them slightly more appealing and or convoluted? Well, that sounds like a better idea. Exactly. And overall, I think it made it a much funner game. Like I said, the asymmetric powers are always fun. Everyone had a good time, and I'd be happy to play it again. Teotihuacan, City of the Gods. We got to play Crash Octopus! Walker, I love Crash Octopus. I am just thoroughly, thoroughly blown away by how much I love Crash Octopus. I've commented frequently that one of the big downfalls of your multiplayer dexterity game is frequently the victory conditions don't shake out to be terribly well balanced. I think that is also true of Crash Octopus. But I don't care, Walker, because it's got a giant pink dome of an octopus head that you bean dice off of to try to knock the captain off of some ship. I love Crash Octopus. It is so much like scratching all the itches of a tabletop miniatures game. You get the visual appeal. You get the tactile appeal. You get the positional questions about where you want to be. And when, If anything, I think Crash Octopus is too short. I think Crash Octopus would be better if it were slightly longer in that you had slightly better opportunity to take the opportunity of moving your ship somewhere. Because that, that, that's the key downside I see of it being as short as it is. Because every time you're not trying to gather another treasure, it feels like a wasted opportunity. And I would be much happier if there were if it made sense on more frequent occasions to move your ship into a more advantageous positions. Because the positional rules in Crash Octopus are very, very clever. You cannot attempt to gather the treasure that is closest to your boat. And then you have to look at your position and say, okay, well, where could I be since I'm close to something I don't need? but also sufficiently close to other things that I do need that I can easily acquire them. But, again, the downside of that is, well, if I'm if I'm moving my ship, I could fail the movement, and meanwhile, this other jerk across the sea is busy gathering things like crazy, and every time someone gathers something, that accelerates the game clock, which means that it feels like you're wasting time. You're Not only is it the case that you're not getting points while someone else is, but you're losing your opportunity to take that overall share of treasure accumulation. With that caveat aside, I love Crash Octopus. It has wonderful moments of drama that you love in dexterity games, pointless aggression, random things happening and nonetheless amusing, skilled shots, visual appeal, adorable rulebook in a traditional Japanese style of lovely little asides and dialogue. I love Crash Octopus. I love it because there's different types of skill shots, right? There's the, you need to flick the treasure at your boat and you have to do it light enough because you don't want to knock the other treasures off your boat. Or you can, in quotations, try to get this treasure and, oh, I hit someone else's boat and it, 
you know, knocked everything off or you're, you're throwing the dice in, you know, this precise angle to, like you say, ricochet off the octopus head and hit someone else's boat. So all these different strengths of skill shots all in one game. Easy to teach. Yeah. This, this is seldom your response to dexterity games. Normally, when there's an opportunity to flick something, you complain if overly harsh flicking leads to a penalty. Walker want to smash. Why no Walker smash? Walker want smash. Well, it's because that you can do that with, like I said, the treasures where you okay. pretend you're trying to get them to your boat. So there's an <laughs> option to do that where the games where it's always, you know, well, if it goes off the board, then it doesn't count. Well, that's just garbage. <laughs> See, there you go. Crash Octopus is able to square the circle and appeal to many different kinds of absurd dexterity gamers. It's a shame it's not more broadly available in North America. You can get it, but it is still very much a Japanese import at heart. This is by Naotaka Shimamoto, published by Itten, that redoubtable Japanese publisher, last year. So back to our Sunday campaign game, which is Reichbusters, and I finally got to play the second mission. And the funny <laughs> part is, Mark, we, on on just last Sunday, we redid, we did two missions in a row. We did, went back and did mission one again, because there were some rules that we wanted not to tweak, but uh, play properly. <laughs> and the some of the players wanted to play it again just because they now fully understood how the game worked and how sound worked and they wanted to retry it. So I did uh you know Space Hulk suicide mission where I set up the whole map without even looking at the book. Got <laughs> one door wrong because I've played the game several times but always just the first mission. Finally got to play mission 2 and so much more sort of came out. You could see that there was some uh, mission design there because there was an obvious choke point. They sort of mapped out where you would get by turn four when the alarm went off and they had two like fairly large rooms on on either side of this choke point and then a, and then a path right down the middle. So we obviously said right at the beginning, okay, well, it's obvious. We should just go right down the middle. We'll get there faster. We don't run time. And then I, you know, sort of spaced it out when we we're halfway there. It's like, well, we're going to reach this middle when the alarm goes off, these doors are going to be kicked open and we're going to get everything all at once. Right. So it's very interesting sort of decisions of which, how to go up the map. Are you going to take that extra time and sort of clear out the room? So when the alarm does go off, you're not getting so many enemies, very interesting card play to make sure you have enough cards when it is your turn. Or now that uh, we have a post alarm phase, what order the characters should go in because pre-alarm you can go in whatever order you want once the arm goes off you have to set the order at the beginning of the turn and you can't change it lots of interesting things coming out finally of different things that are going to happen in Reichbusters. come check it out we play it every sunday on twitch this is by mythic games and designed by renowned gw designer jake thornton Finally got to try Cittastato after hearing you rave about Cittastato on the topic of bag builders. Got to try it. One thing that I had correctly internalized by virtue of my inability to understand a, or exactly see how everything fit together based on your description, but I hadn't quite anticipated the extent, was how weird Cittastato is. And that's one of the reasons why I nonetheless enjoy going back to Euros, even contemporary Euros, because not all of them are of the let's add 12 more modules in the mix. Some of them do manage to feel somewhat novel by virtue of how utterly bizarre a lot of the conventions are. And Cittastato is very much a bag builder, but unlike a lot of other bag builders, even ones that I thoroughly adore, it's not so much about throughput. 
a lot of bag builders, it's about, well, can you increase your draw capacity? Can you get as much to do in a given turn? Running through your bag isn't really much of a big deal. You then reset and everything is fine. Chitastato is very much about the composition of the cubes in your bag, more so than being able to burn through it all at once. Because getting the entirety of the contents of your bag out on the table, not that difficult, really. But then you look at it and say, well, but th these colors don't do anything for me. This is exactly the opposite of a lot of other recipe-based bag builders. And that is one of the things that I actually th think that Chitostato makes for more pressing gameplay decisions than something like Hyperborea. Hyperborea is still my favorite bag builder, but at the end of the day, if you purchased too many blues and not enough reds, there are ways around it. Chitostato, not the same room for error. If you've got the wrong color cubes, you're not going to be able to do what you want to do. So it's demanding in that sense and punishing in that sense. The other way in which it's bizarre and weird is it's kind of an engine builder for an engine that you're going to run once because there's all the points you're going to score during the game, and then some subset of the things that you did during the game, you're going to get to do a second time at the end of the game. And those are your two scores. And you want your two scores to be sometimes as close as possible, sometimes really far apart. Depends on what else you've done over the course of the game. So those, those trade-offs are interesting. I royally flubbed our playing of the game because I refused to do the calculation of numbers. It was literally a situation of, well, do I take this or that? And this will give me two points now and maybe three points later. This one will give me five points later. I should really sit down and do the entire scoring. But I'm at a reduced mental state and enfeebled mental capacity over repeated travel and endless elder care. So I said, ah, oh, forget it. I'll just take the points now and move on. I didn't feel that way for a lot of other decision points in Chitostato. If I did, I wouldn't want to go back. I don't like calculational games like that, where I feel like in order to make every move, every acquisition, every card purchase, I need to do the math and figure out whether or not it's going to give me the marginal advantage later and constantly redoing the scoring. I only felt that near the end, which is fine. A lot of Euros do that. Uh, but if on repeat plays it does that more frequently, I might be less enthusiastic. But this is absolutely a system that I want to go back to because, it's again, it's a different set of challenges from your standard bag builder. And this challenge of building an engine you're only really going to run once while at the same time balancing your during game needs was quite interesting. It wasn't necessarily a particularly clean or thematic or integrated experience, but it definitely wasn't a sprawling mess like you see in a lot of other contexts. And you barely go up any tracks, so that's definitely a virtue. No tracks is good. But speaking of something that you do like, Mark, you said you liked modules. Well, boy, oh, I didn't say check that, out this, this game. Is, this is a lie. It is called... It is called Clinic, and man, this is being even, misrepresented. <laughs> this has more modules than any other game Walker's that I know Walker's gaslighting of. me again. Because they even have more modules on the way. But anyway, because I have more modules on the way, I wanted to get Clinic to the table again and relearn it. This game, you are running a parking lot, and you're parking cars, <laughs> and you're trying to figure out how best to place these cars in the lot. But... Also, you have this sort of side gig, smaller part of the game, but still you have to take care of it. You're also running a hospital. So this is a game designed by Alban Vian and uh, some Ian O'Toole art, and it's published by AV Studio Games. And I really like it. You are uh, hiring nurses and orderlies, and there are some light rules on how you can build your hospital, and you can start building it up in levels. Certain buildings have to be adjacent on the same floor. Some can be adjacent on, you know, below or above, and you're bringing in sick patients, and you have to match them up with the proper doctors, and if 
you have to use nurses if there is a difference in value. And there's very interesting timing, whether you're the first player or second player or sort of bluffing with the actions on when to take the patients in your hospital because the ones that you want could be gone. You're, uh, and like I said, the parking is a big part of it, Mark, because if you've ever been to a hospital, you know parking is a nightmare. And so therefore, it is represented in this game. On what occasion, Walker, would I have had to go to a hospital over the course of the past two weeks? Certainly not twice a day, every day. Certainly not. So overall, we played just the base game today, and I think we're going to go back to it. So maybe next Monday you might see it on stream. This is a game called Clinic, and it is super fun. Has it grown on you from when we reviewed it, or is it just the same joys you experienced before? Same joys. I'm looking forward to adding some of the modules. They seem very interesting. Some of them are silly, like there's zombies. Some of them, oh, some, of course. Some of them are inter- some of them are interesting, like uh, uh, putting fire extinguishers fire extinguishers in and getting bonus points. There is different ways you fire can build your hospital. At- yes, I, is that a big deal in hospital management? Uh, probably in real hospitals. This one not so much. Okay, because they're very sh- they're very shiny. Uh, fire extinguishers. They're so shiny that as you're moving people around your hospital, they have to stop and admire the fire extinguishers. But you get a bonus for when you discharge patients. So heavy simulationist element is what I'm hearing. So yes. So they are very much like the parks, which I was about to talk to talk about the fact that there's many different ways to play the game. You can go with, you know, many different wings or two different buildings or go up four levels or try to utilize your parks, you know, so the, so the patients, uh, give you more money as they're discharged. Lots of different things to do. Looking forward to trying them out. Lastly, for me, I'm glad you like City State or Citasato because there's another game that I want to show you that is also very different and very interesting. It's called Iki. This is designed by Kuta Yamada and put out by Sorry We Are French. And this game, the 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 game we were playing is a reprint. This came out many years ago, but they put out a new edition, and you are moving in this loop around this city and you're building stalls and the main conceit is you are choosing your turn order and that is also dictating how far you get to move around this loop and you're putting in buildings and you're scoring points based on the color of the building and they all have different abilities and you're collecting fish and pipes and to Backle pouches and all of these different things are happening. Lots of unique mechanisms in this game. Definitely check this out. Iki. Question, Walker. How on earth is seven years ago many years ago? Mark, this is the board game industry. Two weeks is long ago. Point taken. Those are the games we played last week. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. First off, a sad announcement. I'm going to have to be on break for a while. As I've made mention, I am in another round of Elder Care. I will not be able to be playing games for the next little while. And so it will be a minor miracle if we're going to be able to get anything out next week. So next week, we're definitely going to be off. We're going to keep you apprised about when we are going to return. This is entirely my fault, not Walker's. As per usual, send all your criticism and complaints to support at aircanada.ca, but please put in the subject line, attention, Mark is a poopy face, and don't worry, I'll get it. They'll send it to me. 
Now on to actual game news. On GameFound, there is a new expansion slash second edition to Warpgate. Warpgate was the almost sort of kind of not really sci-fi 4X-y thing, which is very much a genre of game that I very much appreciate. Games like Quantum and Imperium the Contention that ape many of the conventions of a 4X game but don't take all day. Warpgate is now going to be expanded by Warpgate Beyond. All the cards are going to be replaced, new elements to the objective system, which is one of the sticking points that a number of people had with the game. I came to appreciate it, but I can definitely understand why some people bounced off of it. I'm a big fan of Warpgate. It's a lovely little design. You can check it out on GameFound. You can get all the original stuff as well as the expansion while that campaign is going on there. So speaking of reprints, I talked about uh, last week, I believe, and it was... Crusaders. So Renegade has picked it up, Mark. They are now taking pre-orders for uh, the base game, which they are reprinting, and the deluxe version of the base game, which they are reprinting, and the expansion, which they are selling. It is going to have all the TMG logos on the boxes, but they're going to sell those. Um, I guess they're not thinking they're going to get as many pre-orders as they have copies, but probably if they... Because... Tasty Minstrel trademarked that terrible, terrible word for Deluxe before they went out of business. Does that mean that Renegade can't call it that and instead have to call it Deluxe? That I'm not sure If of. that's true, my appreciation of Crusaders They Will Be Done is going up by at least 15 to 20%. It does, it does say Deluxe Edition pre-orders. It does not say Deluxified pre-orders. So maybe that is amazing. you never know. I am, I am very pro that move. It's it's just the, the expansion that will have the TMG logos on it. Because like I said, I just think they're not printing any of them. They're just going to sell the ones they've got. I've got nothing against the logo. And I've got nothing against the company. It's very sad that, they, that they're no longer publishing games. I just hated that word and everything about it. So there's a lot of serious stuff going on in the world. We're not really in a position to comment on a lot of it. It's outside of our purview. So, but I did decide to talk today about one thing that does bother me that is about the board game world, and I hope that together we can make a small but nonetheless salient difference. Please stop talking about pimping out your games. Let's not trivialize sexual abuse and exploitation. Whatever you think about sex work, pimping is bad. Talk about blinging your games, please. There's no need to bring that in, or hobbies exclusionary enough as it is. So the next time you see someone talking using that word, if you could, if it hasn't been mentioned already in the thread or whatever contact is, a gentle corrective just to ask, could we instead talk about blinging? And maybe, hopefully, over the course of some time of progress, we'll be able to make some, some sort of change in the world. Finally, again, under the topic of very, very important things, merch, Walker, merchandising. Merch, yes. It matters to Spaceballs. It matters to So Very Wrong About Games. So Very Wrong About Games.myspreadshop.ca if you're Canadian.com if you're, if you're American and, and or if you're feeling saucy. And we can assure you that there's a wide range of apparel and other kinds of swag swag. I particularly recommend the drawstring bags for all your tile needs. I can personally guarantee you that all the tiles will be drawn of the color that you want them to be drawn assuming you have the mental powers to back that up. And furthermore, uh, I'd just like to comment on some of the controversies surrounding merchandising for some other podcast offerings. And so I can just state for the record, that whatever else you might have heard about other, other places, we're not casting aspersions anywhere, but our apparel has never been used to flog National Treasure Christine Baranski. Never once. Our water bottles have never been used to carry poison to the prince of a German-speaking microstate. 
and the drawstring bags have never severed anyone's hands off at the wrist in a blood offering to a Chthonic god. So I think that this is a solid indication that contrary to some other offerings, you you, you can go to our shop at sowerywrongaboutgames.myspreadshop.ca slash dot com and you can purchase with confidence. And as a special bonus for the, for the first two weeks, you will get 15% off all your orders. Swag, swag. Swag, swag. Love it. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic, which is draws and red flags, which is pretty well what draws us to wanting to either try a game or purchase a game or what red flags spring up that just say, ah, no, click, next one, no thank you. (laughs) Can we start with the perennial criticism that I always have of of your tastes, Walker? Sure. Well, let's. Let, can we start with one other thing very quickly? Oh, I have to wait to I, criticize you a bit. That sounds like a drag. you do. You do. Oh, okay. I just want to start with like where we get information from. Sure. I'll just go down the list very quickly, and then you can comment or not comment. So, researching the news, like we just talked about the news. While I research the news, I see all sorts of new stuff. So I go through it. We get random emails about new games that are coming out. There are Facebook posts now because, you know, they are always listening and he knows everything. <laughs> you mean you, you mean Zuckerberg, right? Yeah, uh, yeah I wanted to make a, a sort of barbecue sauce comment there, but I can't remember the name of it. Um, then there's the hotness on BGG I use only because... That's how I do things. You do it all the time, but always so self, uh, like, like half apologetically. It's like, oh, well, we, we have to pay attention to this. It's on the hotness. And then I'm like, but why? And like, I don't know. It's a compulsion. I don't know. It is. Then there's the Kickstarter, Kickstarter discovery, you know, tabletop games. You go there, you can click on popular. The ones come up. I just take a brief look at that. And then we do a pledge of indifference on our Patreon every other week or so, which is we look down uh, kick track. And look down is right. New st- and we look down kick track. And sometimes, unfortunately, I see stuff there and I lose a lot of money. <laughs> so those are, the, those, are the, those are the main areas where I look at, at where I find newer, newer fun stuff to see. I can't help but notice that you didn't mention the avalanche of emails that any Kickstarter backer gets on the reg any time a Kickstarter producer so much as breathes for the next five years. And I did say random emails. Yes, <laughs> okay. yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Sorry, you're right. You did say random emails. I apologize. <laughs> I have to say I don't do anything nearly so vigilant. Uh, I've got a couple of board game retailers that I like, particularly ones that get obscure stuff. And my primary exposure to new games that are hitting the retail channels is I just, every time they restock and every time they get new material, I just go through and look at everything they get. And then if something catches my eye and or if something it's something that I haven't heard of, I will then click through to Board Game Geek and see who designed it, who published it, see if there's anything else to, to grab my attention. And that's honestly one of my primary ways of doing it because I find navigating a lot of the other social media stuff it's bizarre. I have to go to a retailer that wants to sell me stuff to avoid a lot of marketing. That's perverse, and yet that's where we are, right? <laughs> because that it's is just where we are. This is the entry. Give us fifty bucks or don't is a far more straightforward proposition than coming this spring with cutting edge, innovative, and blah blah blah. Anyway, we'll get more to that when we talk about red. Yeah, flags. we'll get to innovative soon enough. Yeah. Sorry, that's a bit of a spoiler. Biggest red flag now is innovative. 100%. <laughs> so now can I make fun of you? 
Yes, now you can make fun of me. Okay, thank you very much for the uh, for the permission after the appropriate delay. Uh, we talked about Imperial Struggle at the top of the show. And very much like the same way that you kind of sort of profess that you don't care about the hotness, but at the same time you very, very much do care about the hotness. The moment you get any degree of resistance, you concede and acknowledge that the cover art of a game matters 0%, but you so very much care about the cover art of a game. I, no, I do. I you do. do. I, I always, and I always say the same thing is that I, I particularly don't care about GMT covers. I care about their sales and what they are trying to do. I am sure as a company, they are trying to sell no, games. I don't buy it. And with the cover, with the cover, that's no mark. They do. They want to make no, no, money. No. That's the whole reason no, why. No, of course. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I was not suggesting that GMT is some sort of altruistic oh. enterprise. I'm saying I don't buy your explanation of your own motivational structure. When you make fun of GMT covers, I do not think that what's going on is that Michael Walker wants GMT to succeed and feels that there's money being left on the table and you feel this altruistic desire to help them with their marketing push. I think it's that not what- that I want to help them. I'm just so frustrated in the fact that why do they feel that this ugly mustard yellow is going to move product off the shelf. See, when you say the first half, I believe you. When you say the second half, I think you're projecting. I think it's I think it's a cover. I'm, I'm not trying to accuse you of bad faith, Walker. I sincerely think that it's not out of a desire for the better returns of GMT. I think it's just that you hate the art. I think that's all that there is. I, 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 I think you're trying to dress it up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So art is one of the uh, one of the reasons that it draws me in. If it is a very interesting art style or something I haven't seen before or something interesting, a game like Transmissions, something like in a genre that I like, like funky robots or stuff like that, it's definitely something that's going to let me make me look more closely at it. That actually reminds me of something I wanted to say about Ascension Tactics. Back in the day when Ascension was first being published, it didn't look like every other fantasy game. The art style was very sort of broad stroke, unfocused in a very, very appealing way. For people who haven't seen it, I would actually compare it a little bit to the art style of Street Fighter Four, if that makes any sense. But the new, a few sets into Ascension, they then made it look like more or less every other fantasy card game in existence. The designs are a little bit different, but the art style execution has become much more pedestrian. I agree with you. Look, we've seen really well executed art. There's good art and bad art. But honestly, at this point, we've seen so many iterations of some of the same ideas. Give me something a little bit novel, a little bit out of the box, a little bit different from what we've normally seen. That's one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to the the, the, the future output, that adventure game from Nikki Valens. Artisans of Splendid Vale? There you go. That's one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to Artisans of Splendid Vale. It's not... If for no other reason than the art style is radically different from what we've seen over the past few years, it will not necessarily feel exactly the same as every other fantasy game ever, even though gameplay-wise it might be. All right. So for the draws, Mark, I did put them in sort of an order. So let's say it's sort of like an onion, Mark. It has layers. And so what is going to make me go deeper into the layers? So art was second. The first thing is the hook. Now, if if the the ad team or the merchandising team was smart enough to tell me why this game is actually different right or or the reason why they think this game you would play it more than anything else if they get that out front and center then i'm definitely going to you know look more into it like this is a bag builder or this is this type of bag builder it's different because of this and do not 
compare it to other games. That's for sure. I didn't even write that in there, but as it was coming in my mouth, it's like, don't say it's different than this particular game because we do this, this, and this, or it's better than this game because we do it this way. That will also just say no. Uh, I don't know. I don't necessarily object to the comparison to other kinds of games, either in terms of similarity or difference. I agree with you, though, that what I want is for them to explain how the game can stand on its own legs and be its own thing. And I really do think that this is one of those areas in which we approach things differently from the general market. And I don't mean this in a pejorative way. I don't mean this dismissively. It's just we are in a different headspace when looking at future things to play and future things to consume than, say, a lot of other consumers. And that's just, I think that's just a fact based on, on where things, it doesn't mean our perspective is any better or worse. It's just we we consume a lot more games and therefore we have a different set of priorities. And so to a lot of people who are perfectly happy with playing another thing, they don't necessarily need to have that level of differentiation that you and I sometimes look for. So that was number two, Art. Next on is table presence. So then they show the game. They show it laid out on the table, sort of like you're your penguin or dexterity game. You know right away that I'll be checking it out. I am so unable to connect promotional pictures with how things look in real life. You know, you see those pictures on the side of the box. This is the actual size of the minis or this is the actual size of component or something. The moment it's rendered into a picture, I just can't really visualize how big or how visually appealing it's going to be. It's it's a huge failing. Like, conceptually, I knew that Yuri Yuri Penguin or Crash Octopus was going to look pretty cool. But it was largely on faith. I guess I just don't have much of a visual imagination that way. And now these these games have now a video at the beginning of, of a... Even the kicks, even the ones that don't have Kickstarters, there are games oh, coming out now that are now having promotional videos. And if, like I said, if they start telling you about the mechanics right off the hop, as opposed to, you know, these silly effects or whatever, then it has more chance of getting my attention. I just don't watch them. That's my solution. There you go. If it has an interesting theme that you can sort of grasp by just looking at it, sort of like title blades or, or like we already talked about, uh, uh, Splendid Veil. Games like that where it pulls you right in just from, you know, a totally different type of theme. You know, Walker, just to combine those two notes, if they start the promotional Kickstarter video of Tidal Blades 2 with someone saying, welcome to Naviri, I will pledge. Sweet. I will I will let you know. <laughs> it's coming soon, March 22nd. It is. Um, The designer. So if it's a designer that I know... Let's just put out an example. Andrew Parks. He does all sorts of different stuff. If he says, hey, I'm doing a Kickstarter, I'm going to check it out because it'll be interesting. He does Core Worlds. He does D&D, you know, uh, dragon fighting games. He does all sorts of weird, bizarre designs. And usually they're all very interesting. Yeah, Andrew Parks is a good example of one of those designers like Annabelle Holland, like Jeff Engelstein, that I am always willing to try I often don't like what the final product is, but I rarely feel like I have wasted my time. Now, there is that exception. Uh, Andrew Park's uh, dungeon game you thoroughly didn't enjoy, and I didn't either. It was one of those games where you got so angry, you're like, why does this exist? Uh, <laughs> which is sometimes the angriest I ever see when playing a board game. 
But yeah, so, sometimes just the, the, the knowledge that they're going to do something interesting and possibly weird is more of a draw than knowing that they're going to release something solid. Like, of course, I'll also play anything by Knizia, anything by David Thompson, anything by Matt Gertz. You know, those, those, those are definitely my top designers and I will play whatever they put out. And I'm not saying that they've ever put out serious stinkers because I don't think they have. Uh, maybe Reiner Knizia. Reiner Knizia has designed one or two games that I thought were pretty bad. But sometimes interesting is better than good. And that's often what I'm in the mood for. And then there's the publisher, right? So if there's a company like Simon, you know, they're not going to hit it every time, but they're going to have a fantastic package to look at and sort of assess. And hopefully it'll be something new and interesting. Ooh, I'm a big defender of Simon, but I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> there are very few publishers that I'm willing to give any stock to. It's actually more designers, and it's more the publishers that only publish from certain designers. Like, Wolf Designer, I'll play anything that Wolf Designer puts out uh, because that's Artyom Nichipurov, and he's an amazing designer. He works with other people. It's not just him, but everything he's put out has been stellar, and so I'll try anything they, they put out. Splatter is the same way. It's always the same two designers. So it's not so much the publisher. So if those two designers published something under a different publishing house, I don't care what that publisher would be. I'd still go and try it. So I'm, I'm less and less in, in terms of loyalty to publishers anymore. It's more designers than anything else. It's true, but just to get the draw in is what I'm saying. Like, just to make you interested. Like, I will look at any Simon Kickstarter oh, that thing, is, not necessarily. That is fair enough. You're right. I that's That, for me, is more a question of value proposition in terms of, you know, it's, it's a safe bet. You don't like the game? Sell it. And you, even in Canada, even if you're not actually particularly aggressive in selling it, you'll get your money back. And so it's basically a free a, a free rental, as far as I'm concerned. That is still held true. Now I'm not saying that. Look, I'm not some. I'm not Chris Kramer. This isn't Mad Money. This is not investment advice. <laughs> it could cease to be true at any moment. But so far, it's it's held held true so far. And if we want to talk about table presence, yeah, your big Simon Kickstarters almost always have good table presence. So there's that as well. Then we have grit, crunch, weight, however you want to talk about it. If you know it's going to be a heavy Euro or, a, uh, you know, a, this super heavy game, if you're not explaining how the all these mechanisms ne mechanisms work together as opposed to, you know, here they are all in their own little mini game and yep. they're not really going to do anything with each other, you know, something like Weather Machine where they bring you right down on the page and they say, you know, this is going to affect that, which will affect this, and these were all tied together. You can pretty well tell with a Lacerda game that they're all going to do that, but are they all going to do that in a, in a way that's enjoyable or make sense to the theme or, you know, going to give you a sense of that you're doing something that, that makes sense or that is fun to do. Yeah. Is it going to be like barrage? Is it going to be like a splatter game or is it going to be more like on Mars? Exactly. Yeah. I'm not really able to get that sense before playing the game, you know, reading the copy or reading other, even other people's reviews of games, you know, put, give me the pre-release information about barrage next to the pre-release information of on Mars. And other than the fact that I have more faith in the designers of the Italians behind barrage than behind Vital Lacerda, I wouldn't necessarily have been able to make that inference. Things like that. I tend to only really get a sense of when actually reading the rules. Last but not least is price. You sort of look at the price, look at what you're getting, look what 
what sort of niche or hole it's going to fill in your collection and is it worth that price you're going to pay and the only game i have here is lots because i want to talk about lots because lots is an amazing game for a cheap <laughs> price yes absolutely well i mean in terms of, of novelty we, we've both been stressing novelty and the fact that lots was very clearly from its inception pitched at a relatively, uh, it was like it was almost performance art. It's like I'm going to take my leftover crap and send it to you as a game design. It's like, all right, I'm sold. Yeah, it's just like that. That it's almost like a, I forget which show. It's almost like a picnic face. You know, uh, it's like, I'm taking my stuff and I'm throwing it in a box. Buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, Walker, what are some of your red flags? I've got, I've got a number. All right. Red flag. These aren't in order. Right. But here we are. Red flags. Verpolino is my biggest red flag. I beg your pardon? Okay. Write that down, Mark. It is the I'm... new board game buzzword. Okay. Verpolino. Could you, right? could you it spell it, please? V-E-R-O-P-P-I-N-L-O. It stands for Solo Campaign Co-op Versus. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so these new campaigns and or games that can claim they can do anything. You pick, Mark. You yeah. pick. Yep. You know, you put the game on the table and you just decide how you want to play it today. You that know, was you honestly know, my number one red flag. There's only one game that I've ever played that managed to pull it off, and that's Mage Knight. So before you're trying to design or sell this game, ask yourself the following question. Is this game... As good as Mage Knight. Let me tell you, the answer is, the, the odds are very good that the answer is no. So next up is if it's a second edition or a reprint and it's a game that I've never heard of. Oh, sure. So so Dur Dune Arrakis is going to hit two of these, which is that one because it's a reprint of Borderlands, I believe. And the... And another uh, red flag I have is if all the assets are computer generated only. Oh, I see. So Dune Arrakis by Gale Force 9, they put out some, you know, ads for it and it's all just computer generated pictures and it's a reprint of a game called Borderlands that I heard of, I believe, once. Well, Borderlands was reprinted by a fantasy flight called Gear Worlds. Apparently someone else is making another run at it. Uh, Borderlands is the most divisive slash least like of the Eon group's output. Eon, of course, the inventors of the epic-making Cosmic Encounter and also of the shockingly good hoax. But Borderlands is one that I never really tried. Uh, the rules kind of scared me off by virtue of the fact that it didn't seem like... I, I could see where the negative reviews were, co were, were coming from. Yeah, this is indeed the third attempt. Reminds me a little bit of the uh, upcoming reprint of what was originally the Sons of Anarchy game. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the Sons of Anarchy television show. I have zero enthusiasm for biker gangs, but I have 100% enthusiasm for remakes of Shakespeare that don't look like Shakespeare. And so Sons of Anarchy was finally Hamlet in a form that I could really appreciate. Plus, Ron Perlman is always great. But I never really had much interest in the board game. They reprinted it as a D&D &D version. Now they're going to be reprinting it as a, as, a, as a Rum Runner version. Still not down for it. All right. So if the first campaign was canceled, that usually sends up red flags pretty quickly. Eh. You know, why was it? Uh, it's not huge. It's just there. Sure. The market is so fickle and weird. 
And I've played a number of games that were quite excellent after finally reaching their funding goal. So I, I look at some of these games that were published over the past couple of years where they only raise like under $100,000 and they produce something so clever and quality with good components. I'm thinking of some of the stuff that Blacklist used to do, although I'll be, I'll be crapping on Blacklist in just a moment. You know, games like um, some of uh, Wolf Designer's games, they canceled their original run at, at crowdfunding and relaunched, and everything they've done has been amazing, both in terms of components and rule quality. So I, I find it hard to hold it against someone for that. So if it's a first-time designer that I've never heard of or they've designed games they have not enjoyed. Yeah, definitely. Much more so the second than the first, but the first as well, yes. Correct. Although if it's the first, the first is sort of a caveat of if it's this sort of grand design, huge, you know, campaign, giant game, and it's their very first game yeah. they've ever designed, as but opposed to taking their core mechanism of that game, making a mini game out of it and sort of... Well, not a mini game, but a smaller that. game. A, 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 more... a smaller game out of that, and then later on, flushing that out. Absolutely. Here we go. Now we'll go back to what we started at the very beginning. Too many keywords and <laughs> nothing to back it up. Revolutionary. Oh, yeah. Original combat system. <laughs> innovative. Well, revolutionary is innovative on stilts. And yes, both of them. <laughs> you, you much more rarely see someone claim revolutionary. That Let's be thankful for that. But innovative, oh geez, I yeah, it, it's lost all meaning for me. I just I I, I can't I can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lost meaning and and raises immediate red flags. Absolutely. If there's no rule book, then you sort of wonder what's going on. Now this is an older one, but sometimes it still holds true. If the game is based on an IP, small red flags come up. Yeah, it's strange. They've done much better lately, but still, for whatever reason. I was thinking about that, and I think for me, if it's based on a book, movie, or television show, that stigma has almost entirely gone away. If it's based on a video game, I still have a bit of it. Primarily because, we've talked about this before, adapting video games into board games can often be much, much more difficult than other forms of adaptation. Because if it's just, we want you to have these kinds of characters and art assets, and maybe if you're really doing well at an adaptation, this kind of sort of overall thematic feel of the universe, that's one thing. But then sometimes when you're starting to adapt a video game, then you have this complication from the fact that you're already working off of game systems. You either ignore them entirely, or you try to port them. Both of them have problems. It's 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 a bit of a mess. Now, I, I, I have enjoyed some video game adaptations, but it seems to me a little bit more fraught. Next up is more of a me thing. We cover this usually in the in the uh, pledge of indifference is where the funding doesn't make sense. Where <laughs> where they've raised, you know, there's only a hundred backers, but they've completely you know raised all the money they need, or right. every backer so far has gone in for the maximum pledge. So why are they doing something shady if they don't have faith in their product? Why are they? Are they trying to – it's understandable that they want to hit all of the flags, right? So they get top of kick track. They get refunded in two hours. They hit all of these things. But it's so obviously, manipul obviously manipulated that it raises flags for me. I seem to recall a very, very wise man, a very handsome man, a man with a beautiful, beautiful voice talking no about mark. the necessity, Walker, of 
making sure that you succeed in the marketplace and devoting resources without using without using shady practices. Ah, uh, look. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all marketing, right? I mean, no. I'm I I don't necessarily. I, I share your view that it's an interesting phenomenon, but I don't necessarily share the view that it's necessarily shady if they are playing the algorithm game that everyone else is. Well, stop making it so obvious. <laughs> oh, so you'd rather they be slightly more sophisticated about their shadiness. Se- secretively shady. Okay. All right. Uh, using a popular name in the title for no reason. Like of a past game. Like terraforming Mars colon something something. Or Oh, yeah. You still you haven't I mean? forgotten, like, forgiven them for that, have you? N- never will. <laughs> um... <laughs> When the when the game seems overreaching, like we've talked about this campaign systems with, you know, five different add-ons and ten different expansions all coming out at once. I, this this game that's on there right now, it's called Solar 175, where it's just this massive table covering tiles and pieces, and it just seems overreaching. Then I have red flags and have to check out rule books and other things. Yeah, the way I'd kind of summarize that is if I if I don't get a sense that the game has an idea, if it doesn't have a thing to say, I'm not going to insist that every game be condensable into some sort of thesis statement or core element of ludogenic narrative or other kinds of words that I would never use. But if I really get the sense that it was a whole bunch of ideas that the author thought was clever with any kind of organizing principle... I'm apt to lose interest, especially since, as you pointed out previously, I'm not going to have any faith that these things fit together in any remotely cohesive way. And that's one of my common complaints about games once they get past medium weight complexity. But if, on the other hand, if it's clear that the game has a central thesis, which sometimes it gains from the setting, like a lot of the war games that I really much enjoy or a lot of the historically themed games are very much about, hey, here's this event or this period of history that has not really been rendered well in games before. Let's see what we can do with it. That is often enough to get my interest peaked, regardless of whether or not the game mechanics, I have any faith, are particularly well married to that suit. But if... It's clear that there's no central driving idea past, I think I had some clever notions, then that's a huge red flag for me. So if there's a game that says you're going to play these four heroes and you're going to have all these miniatures and go on a campaign, then it's it's just not even red flags. It's <laughs> click on to something else. Well, for, it's funny you mentioned four heroes because this is uh, one of the first things that I thought of when thinking of red flags was indeed... Vera, Vera Pinlo. We're gonna have to talk about the the pronunciation of this word. I love the word. I'm there. I'm I'm there with you. We're gonna have to workshop this a little bit. But was a fixed player count, where you might have, and it's frequently four. You know, there are going to be four heroes in the in every game. Play with two players. Each player takes two. Play solo. You play all four. Play with three. Ah well, decide which one gets double duty, and the rest get yeah. So I I think I I'm at the point now where. You could have all the interesting elements in the world, like a designer I love, elements that I trust. If it's a fixed player count, there's a solid chance that I'm not going to give it a second look. I don't pretend it's rational. It's just the way I be. And then last for me, no, it's not last. Uh, Inappropriate art or theme. Yeah. If it's art that I think is shady or a theme that which I think should not be covered, then I don't even bother. Or even if it's not covered respectfully, if you can get the sense that they're not doing it justice or they haven't really 
done the effort to make sure that it's presented in a, in a thoughtful way. Yeah, I agree. Life is too short to have your hobby time being undercut by being ashamed of what's on your table. And then truly last for me is price. So unless you're like filling a certain niche on my table or something, a game that I don't already have seven of, then if it's $250, then I'll, you know, it's like, no, maybe I really don't need that. <laughs> yeah, it's the, the, the spread of board game prices is really getting quite striking. I mean, yes, the hobby is getting more expensive overall, but you can still find really quality 10, 15, $20 games. And at the same time, you routinely have $250, $500 games. And so it's really this massive universe of price points. It's, it's really quite striking. I don't know how accessible it is overall in terms of money. I think I think the complaints about how inaccessible board gaming is is a bit overblown because people are frequently like, well, if you want to have this specific game and this other specific game, it's like, no, you can build a library of lots of games, each of which are relatively inexpensive, that are really high quality. Uh, but it was never the case that buying a massive box full of plastic was particularly cost-effective. Like, even Hasbro was pumping out HeroQuest back in the day. It was not a cheap product. I mean, granted, proportionally, it's probably more expensive. But suffice to say, if you want a game on the cheap, it's still doable. And, of course, we know lots of gamers that game all the time and own zero games or close to zero games anyway. All you need to do is find somebody with more money than sense, like the two of us that pay, that spend too much on games, and then, then, then you're good. And leech off them, yeah. Yeah, 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 precisely. Uh, related to this issue of money, though, uh, there are some publishers that have just completely ruined my faith in them entirely, and as a result, I don't ever want to give them money. Uh, these are people like Peterson Games. These are people like Blacklist. Uh, their recent Kickstarter fulfillment has been so riddled with either misdirection or strange, unforced errors that never seem to be their fault. It's always these other people's fault as to why it's happening. Delays, I'm okay with. Delays, I'm fine with. But after a certain history where a publisher routinely encounters these problems of, oh, well, we ran out of money to pay these people, but we're not actually going to say we ran out of money to pay them. We're going to talk about administrative hurdles and this, that, and the other. That's it. I'm done. I just, even if they put out amazing games, I'm very confident that Blacklist Games is going to keep turning out amazing games. I'm going to have nothing to do with them. I'm just tired of being treated that way, suffice to say. And this is on top of some designers and publishers that you and I have collectively decided are bad actors and noxious influences on the hobby, and we don't want to support them either. So those are the other huge red flags. It's, it's even beyond red flag. I just see the name and I move on. And on that cheery note, that's going to do it for this week of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can find our website, SoWrongGames.com, and our contact information is SoWrongGames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Merch! Merch! And you can also find us on Patreon and Twitch. Thank you very much again for joining us, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bickey. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? 
These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.